how people choose and how they perceive quality is really far more complex than just price. And that's why I think, although it's a decent concern, I'm not sure it's one that really fundamentally drives the market in any particular way. When a big, low-cost veterinary care facility drops into a community, the for-profit hospitals will suffer. Or will they? Welcome to a brand new episode of the Veterinary Business Success Show, a part of the VedEx Leaders Community Online. In each episode, we explore ideas and subjects you can use to manage your veterinary practice better and be a better leader. I'm your resident asker of questions, Brendan Howard, and today the economic researcher I'm talking to is Roger Haston at the Institute for Animals, and he says, not so fast. Low-cost care from nonprofit or high-volume hospitals in a market may actually increase profits at the average general practice. The ASPCA ponied up some money for Haston to dig into the question, and it's published in the American Journal of Veterinary Research. Let's get right into it. You came onto my radar because I have a former colleague, Dr. Entrican, who sent me, who saw a published study that you had done called Simulation of the Effect of Low-Cost Companion Animal Clinics on the Market for Veterinary Services. And this instantly interested me because I know there has always been, so sort of wandering the past 15 years or so in veterinary business, hearing people talk about it, both the people up at the top at companies and then the people out in practice in Mm -hmm. small practices, there's a lot of strong opinions about what happens when low cost or no cost veterinary options crop up in a market or sort of get sometimes I know sometimes people feel like they're shoved in from outside. There's money that gets poured in. So, you know, some folks in the industry are sometimes resistant to having low cost or no cost veterinary options put into the market. And I hear the number one fear that I hear is that it will lower the value of their services at their practice. So right off the bat, I know you've looked at economics of this stuff and we can talk about the study in specific, but right off the bat, when you went to do this research, did you hear that concern and what are your thoughts on it? Yeah. I mean, I think that's always kind of been a concern and I I think it's, you know, a perfectly valid concern like so many of the concerns around this topic. I think though, when you really look and what I've tried to focus on is to think about consumer behavior in, in, I think, a little more robust way. And when you look at a lot of the studies from other industries, you don't tend to necessarily see, see it in as simplistic of a terms as that, because each individual is not necessarily making running around making these comparisons to see, you know, this one's cost more, so it's better. And especially in healthcare in particular, in human healthcare, but then also in veterinary care. I mean, I think it's a valid concern. I'm not sure it is one that is really fundamental to the key issues that we're talking around. What is the impact of low-cost clinics? And we can talk more about what some of those details are how people choose and how they perceive quality is really far more complex than just price. And that's why I think, although it's a decent concern, I'm not sure it's one that really fundamentally drives the market in any particular way. Okay. So tell me a big picture, sort of what were these simulations you did and what did you find in the research? 
Well, so I really tried to look at, I wanted to approximate kind of a more realistic buyer behavior, because if we think about buying almost anything, very rarely do we just simply buy on price. We buy on a lot of different attributes around convenience, around awareness, all those kind of things that can influence how we choose to buy something. And so I wanted to focus in this particular published paper, and I'm, I'm working on another one as well. But in this particular one, I wanted to really kind of simplify it down to two really core attributes. And that is one I called willingness to pay. And that is uh, not just willingness, it, it encompasses all attributes. And it's what price somebody will accept that they would actually make that transaction. And that could be both a willingness and it encompasses ability as well. So it's just in economics terms, we call it willingness to pay. The other is what I call the willingness to wait. And that is really a convenience um, factor. How willing are we to be inconvenienced? Because anytime you're waiting, there is an opportunity cost for each person. And when will somebody be willing to wait and absorb that opportunity cost? And when will they not? And I wanted to see kind of how do those two things play with each other. Because when I think about myself, and particularly in veterinary services, I don't mind paying a little bit more if I have a lot of convenience. If it's the veterinarian just down the street that I can walk to, I'm a lot more excited about that. And I'm far less price sensitive. I'm not going to drive an hour to save myself $5. because the- <laughs> Okay, right. I perceive my time to be far more valuable at that point than the extra $5 I had to pay. Now, not everybody is that way, but I, that's what I really wanted to reflect was how does convenience and price play in people's decision-making? And that's what I did in this particular model. Does that mean there were other levers that in, boy, if, if you'd had more time, you would have wanted to add this third thing, you know, so you've got convenience and the opportunity cost of waiting for things willingness to pay and ability to pay. Were there other levers? You're like, oh, if we could add that in, that would be even a more robust consumer behavior look. Yeah. The second study I I did that I have not published yet included okay. a, th- a third variable, which I called veterinary uh, visit likelihood, which is really sometimes us scientists label things far more complex than they need to be. It is really about awareness. So you're not going to be worried... If you have no awareness of a product, then it doesn't matter what the price of that product is. And so in that model, I included that third attribute because I I had now price, convenience, and then awareness. And those three interplay with each other. Because if you think about it in business, what's the first you have a product, the first thing you want to go do is market that product because people don't know it's there. As we talk about this, I think there still is quite a few people out there that have very low awareness of veterinary service and what it can do for them, why it's important, where they can get it. And so those were, I think, the key three. And in that study, I actually used actual demographic data to demonstrate why we end up with these veterinary deserts where there's just no veterinarians anywhere near where people live. And it's a combination of those three. So it's interesting when you were talking about willingness to pay and willingness to wait, it sounded like you had a vision that, you know, the 
clients out there are weighing more than just price. And one thing in the study, it sounds like you did. So I want to talk about this, whether in the simulation you found or kind of assumed that the average practice clients are price insensitive. So I think there's a lot of uh, teeth mashing and worrying about quote unquote phone shoppers. So there's these people who either hear from someone that someone is cheap or they shop around. They're just looking for a commodity, whatever it is, the spay, the neuter, the wellness visit. How much does it cost at A? How much does it cost at B? How much does it cost at C? What's included? Who's the cheapest? That's where I'm going. And I think either you found or assumed in the simulation that maybe that isn't often or mostly the case. How do you know? Why do you think that's true? I mean, there's a number of studies out there that really have looked at what causes people to stay with a veterinarian. And it's not that price isn't important in there, but it is rarely the most important. There's a a few studies, one that looked at clients in Australia and the UK, and it was really about their customer experience that attracted and kept them there, even when they were upset with price. Once a veterinarian has a client, it's pretty sticky. It takes quite a bit of energy for them to leave. And especially if you're providing some good client service. And so I think how a practice operates influences how likely those clients are going to stay more than price. If you have a client that is doing that shopping around, then they're probably very price sensitive, but most of them are not, at least within the way that the veterinary practices are structured. Generally, we've already segmented. We tend to locate in, in more lucrative environments. So we're in, in with clientele that probably don't have the time to shop around to save $10. Yeah, And they're far more focused on did you give me a report card on how my pet's doing? Did I feel like you respected me as a client? All those kind of things. And that's what the science has really shown. So I wanted to really try to reflect that. The other key one that really got me motivated in this is when you look at some of these like low-cost vaccine clinics and things. I was going to ask, yeah. Yeah, there are people that will wait in line for eight hours. <laughs> 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 to get that. And that really struck me both then that there's huge pent up demand out there of people that want to do the right thing for their pet, but had no option before, either because they didn't know or they didn't have the money, but they're willing to stand in line for an insane length of time <laughs> to get a free vaccine. And so that really struck me. I'm like, okay, well, we can't view all clients as the same, and they're not all making decisions off the same parameters. I want to see a nice picture of my dog, and you tell me, you know, he was a good boy, and, you know, I get great service, and I want to trust the doctor, and I like, I want a nice office where I don't, I can make an appointment and do it online and show up. That's what I, I make most of my decisions on, and if it costs me a few more dollars, that's fine. But a lot of people just aren't as fortunate as me. And, you know, they're forced into a situation when we don't have other options available for them that they either, they just end up not getting the care. And there's been a lot of work being done in a lot of underserved communities now where a staggering number of people with pets have never been to a veterinarian. And that to me is kind of tragic. I think everybody 
involved in this all has the same goal as we recognize how much better animals' lives are when they get veterinary services. And we, we need to find ways to continue to grow that market, not just on the low cost side, but on for people that do have a willingness to pay, we need to continue to grow that market as well. So the most interesting thing, looking at it in the conclusion summary discussion at the end, was from the simulations, you say you found that low cost options, so lower prices at low cost options entering the market, meant higher profits at higher price practices. How is that possible? Tell me how that happens. People have asked me this before because it's kind of the... (laughs) Okay. It's the non-intuitive part of this. But what's the power of these kind of simulations is each time somebody shows up at the clinic in the model. It's dynamic, right? Their attributes will change as the conditions at that clinic change. So as the wait time increases, somebody that, say, maybe was shopping around and found something lower and went to the clinic and then found out there was a four-hour wait or that they couldn't get an appointment for a month, suddenly that attribute becomes too negative because they're starting to feel that that cost and it will push them to stay, become stickier clients at the higher cost clinic. And you see this in like hotels where, you know, you can have a variety of, of price discrimination in hotel chains and they'll put them right next to each other because it will naturally sort the market out. That's what happens is you will actually get a lot of times and we're talking in general terms for each practitioner, you know, it's going to feel a little bit different. But the reality is if you don't have to spend the money to try to get the ideal client to your clinic, what that low cost clinic will do will naturally sort it so that they will create a perceived value for your higher cost clinic because those people don't want to go experience that inconvenience. So Now, in their mind, they've made a better choice, and they're more likely to stay because of that. Today's show is brought to you by Vetex International. Now, are people the major pain point in your practice? If so, you're not alone. Over 90% of managers report staff problems to be their number one issue. At the root of this problem are usually three dysfunctions. A poorly articulated vision, toxic culture, or some form of leadership breakdown. If this sounds familiar, then do not despair. Help is at hand. I encourage you to check out Leaders, a veterinary-specific leadership training program where you will learn how to create and execute on a shared vision, how to hire well, and build a powerful, high-performance practice culture without all the drama. The class is accredited, delivered online, and open for applications now. To learn more, listen to a free training webinar or apply, visit vetexinternational.com forward slash leaders. Okay, welcome back to the show. I hope you enjoyed part one. Let's get into some more meaty content to help you grow your practice in part two. This may be completely outside with a purview of, of this study, but maybe you've thought about it. One thing that's happened, there have been stories in communities, there will be an, a sudden inpouring of a mass amount of nonprofit charity dollars mm-hmm. and places that are for profit that have overhead, 
maybe that sorting is difficult because they come in and build a brand new, beautiful facility and they staff it well. And they're isn't a wait time. And the prices for a set of services are very low. And it's because it is bankrolled by a nonprofit charity. And so then a lot of kind of the for-profit practice owners who've been in that community for a long time sort of grumble. Is there anything about this simulation that they should think about? Because it's it's a disruption in that market and it feels bad. Is there anything you have to say to that sort of complaint about, well, I'm for-profit, they're nonprofit. It's an uneven playing field is sometimes what we'll hear. Yeah, and it's always a challenge because when you're running a small business, it's hard. <laughs> and yes, you're just experiencing the market from your perspective. And so these concerns are real and you can get anytime you know you have new entrants into a market, there's going to be a period of disruption for sure. But if you think about let's say spay and neuter or vaccines, in a lot of the practices, uh, that does not represent a huge part of the overall profitability of that practice. So I think it, to me, you have to really be pretty focused on what it is that really makes you money and what doesn't. And there are times when sometimes it's better off to have, say, some of those other services that don't actually make you that much money, it's okay if they go away. Now, you may experience a bit of a drop, but in the end, you're probably going to end up with a more focused, more loyal clientele. And I mean, I think, you know, there's a lot of ways that we can rethink about what the relationship is between, say, those nonprofits and the for-profits, because a lot of them don't offer the kind of services and depth of services that a lot of the veterinary practices do. And they have to refer out an awful lot of clients, you know, especially in the specialty realm. So I think there's a lot of opportunity where one of the big drags on nonprofits is per their mission, they have to serve a lot of not profitable customers that just don't have the money to do it. And one of the things I've seen, and I think it, which is a big opportunity, there are so many veterinarians that are incredibly generous and provide an awful lot of discounted and free services that most of us never see, but they do because they care about animals. And I think, yes. I think starting to rethink and step back a little bit and think about what are we really trying to do here? And is there opportunities in which we can share both the benefits and the cost of providing to a broader market segment. Now, there will be times, I don't want to be naive about it, that it can hurt a business, no doubt. But in general, I think if we broaden our view of how the business runs, there's an awful lot of opportunities. And I think a lot of these groups will find that it actually enhances their business. There's a, a friend of mine that had a really high-end practice and uh, she had located it right next to three very low-cost clinics. And what she found was it actually helped her business quite a bit because she had places to refer people that she hadn't before that just couldn't pay or weren't really the type of client that her business was set up to serve. And when I talked to her, and this was kind of one of the things that motivated me to do this was she was like, it really helped my business by having those low cost clinics nearby because it just created more options 
for the clients and just naturally segmented the ones that fit my high-end practice. In your simulation, so there are a lot of practices that because, you know, the cost of veterinary medicine has become very advanced and the cost can be high for very good reasons. They sort of start catering to a higher paying clientele naturally. And then there's the kind of catch-all practices. And those are practices that try to serve everybody. And sometimes they do well and sometimes they really struggle because they don't kind of have their niche. And I think there are much fewer practices that are for profit that focus on low cost. When you did the simulation, did you count in uh, financial support or were all these companion animal clinics sort of considered, they're all considered for profit. They just run the gamut of serving the clientele. How did you simulate that in there? Yeah, I didn't really go to that level of detail on okay. financials. Now you could, and, and there there are some, I think people always perceive the nonprofits have this huge advantage. And there are, in, yes. in, <laughs> yeah, in some areas, that would be a true statement because some can get, you know, property tax uh, waivers and things like that, that are definitely an advantage. But when we think about a nonprofit, I mean, it's a tax status, not really a business model. And there are definitely uh, more and more for-profit, low-cost clinics that operate and they they do quite well. And they do quite well because they're very focused. If, If we think, say, for example, spay, neuter, it's not a high margin item. And to make money at it, you have to, you know, be super efficient, you know, where you're doing 30, 40, 50 span neuters a day, then it can be quite lucrative. But, and that's what you see. If you think about what's happening in human healthcare, yeah, it's really fragmented out or you don't see too many, like just general facilities that do everything. You now go to the dermatology clinic, you go to the GI clinic, you go to the orthopedic clinic. Why? Because they've recognized that to get the efficiencies of those business models to work, you need volume and you need that tight expertise. I think that's what we're starting to see a bit in the veterinary world as well, where there are a lot more specialty clinics now. And I think for a practitioner, it's about how does my business model going to interact in that space where some of these things to make money really require that efficiency. So you either don't do it or you find ways to partner such that you can pick up some of those cost efficiencies in some of these lower margin items. You did mention one reality, which is sort of, you know, we talk about food deserts in mm-hmm. places that struggle to get grocery stores, reasonably priced grocery stores in areas. And we have these veterinary deserts where either sometimes urban, but some oftentimes rural or semi-rural, there just aren't enough practices to go around. There's people who want the services. Is it usually people, is there anything in here from your studies that say, can money be made from low cost facilities in places where they can't get high volume in those places? Would anything about the simulation lead you to think there could be a solution in here for those veterinary deserts? Well, so I I think it depends on the type of desert. I mean, I think in the- Okay. I think like in the rural communities, it's a challenge. There's no doubt because you have a you have a much more limited market and it's diffuse. So I think some of the attributes, how we think about the business in an urban environment is definitely different than how we have to think about it in a rural because there, you don't have the depth and ability to just be highly specific um, like you might in an urban environment. But I think the one thing 
I've seen in either one is people really care about their pets. And given an opportunity, they would like to get veterinary service. One interesting study I read was really looking at how people's perception of willingness to pay changes depending on how you charge for it. In other words, if you give people, say, a chance to do a payment plan, they will actually pay more if time becomes part of how they pay. So their willingness to pay will go up if they have more financing options. And you see this in a lot of things. But I think that's something, especially in in difficult environments, like in some of these rural communities where they're really trying hard to serve everybody because there's just not very many veterinarians out there. That's a way that we can start to rethink the problem a little bit is maybe there are some opportunities or partnerships that will allow how we charge to change how much people will be willing to pay. And maybe that kind of leads me, you know, maybe we should have started this, but actually I want to get right into the study. I'm curious, maybe you could tell me a little bit about kind of where the study blossomed from, who sort of paid to make it happen. Give me the background on the on the study's inception. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I've been working on and just really starting to think about the veterinary space from a granting perspective, because we were funding as a grantor, funding a lot of spay-neuter clinics and vaccine clinics and and just started. So I, I really wanted to start to understand how that space looks. And then both seeing the immense demand and then also some of the conflict and trying to think about how does this actually work and why do we get, you know, people willing to wait in line for eight hours really motivated me to start looking at the economics So I had just been kind of working on it on my own. And then I approached the ASPCA because I knew they were doing a lot of work in this space. And I said, would you fund me to do this work? It's independent research. My goal really, what I pitched to them was, I think this is a way that we can build some bridges and start to view the problem in a way that I think allows us to have some deeper, richer conversations and everybody's interests can be represented. And so that was thanks to their very generous funding. That's it gave me the time to really sit down and um, develop the models. When you say building bridges, what kind of work like this, what bridges do you hope to build? Does um, either ASPCA or, you know, people at PetSmart Charities or what is their sense that these are the places where kind of communication breaks down or people have some rough assumptions that we should test and see if it's right or wrong? Well, I think, you know, I go back to that when I talked about the veterinary visit likelihood, which is my fancy yeah. term for marketing. Everybody, <laughs> <laughs> everybody benefits when there's more awareness. So the one place that I think it will never hurt either the for-profit or the non-profit is if we get the message out about why and how important it is to get veterinary services. And so I think that's an obvious one. The other one, especially when we start to think about convenience and ability to pay, working closely together can create an optimized model for the two. And that's, I think, is the fundamental thing is we can never think about these markets as just independent of each other. When we have a veterinarian open a new practice, that has an impact on the overall market in some form or way. And that there is a relationship 
to how one model affects another, having those conversations and really understanding and having the respect for each other around each business model, what it brings to the table and what it doesn't, I think opens up uh, more economic opportunity for everybody. Where should people, you did mention in an upcoming study, if people want to learn more about you and the work you're doing, where should they go? They can uh, just contact me directly at rhaston at theinstituteforanimals.org and or uh, reach out on LinkedIn. And hopefully I'll have this other study ready to publish here soon. It's just always takes a lot longer than you expect. <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> it does. LinkedIn's a good place. Just ping me there and uh, be happy to hear any comments and questions, ideas. That was R. Haston, R-H-A-S-T-O-N, at theinstituteforanimals.org. That wraps up today's episode of the Veterinary Business Success Show. It was an honor to share it with you. If you enjoyed it, we would love it if you leave a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts and tell your friends in veterinary medicine about us. Want a little more? You are in luck. An extended version of this podcast is available exclusively to our leaders community. You can learn more at vetxinternational.com. And until next time, I just want you to know, I appreciate you.